Hello, Irenacast listeners. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to remind everyone that our episode 200 is coming up. It's kind of a big milestone for a podcast, especially one like ours that have gone through many changes and iterations in terms of hosts and content and all that kind of stuff. So we want to invite you to share with us your feedback on the show. If you have questions, we'll answer them. If you have comments, we'll put them out there. If you have criticisms, we'll probably keep those to ourselves. Uh, but, you know, you never know. So with our 200th episode coming up, we want to make it kind of a Q&A fun celebration of the show and hopefully just highlight how the guests and content that we've put out there has helped, inspired, or even challenged you uh, in your spirituality. So if you literally would like to have your voice on the show, we would love to get your questions and comments in audio form so we can put it on the show so you can record an audio clip and send it to our email, which is podcast at irenicast.com. Or you can get in contact with us on all of our social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we can read your comment on that 200th episode. So we're excited to hear from all of you and we look forward to episode 200. So Without any further ado, this week's episode, Casey and I, it was just the two of us, got to sit down and have a great conversation. So I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast, a group of folks leaning into our progressive Christian imagination. I'm Casey. And I'm Jeff. And on the first and third Tuesday of every month, we provide conversation for shifting perspectives on theology and culture. Thank you for joining us. Bonnie and Rajiv are on assignment, and so we are here. Just consider it the Irenicast all-star team. Is that how we're going <laughs> to? Sure. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. Actually, you would disagree because Bonnie. I, I was just going to say, well, <laughs> Bonnie would have to be here. I love Rajiv, but we all know uh, Bonnie's where it's at. So here we are. It's just us, Jeff. You know, we have been just sort of really in the last few episodes, I think, trying to uh, draw in some other voices and some other thinking around important conversations around. Uh, Christofascism, and then we had Tom Ordon talking about end times from a process uh, place. And I think that these are all really important conversations. Um, and also our great conversation with Sila about generational divides and stuff like that, and how that plays into everything and how dramatically our perspectives are from generation to generation. That's right. And in these days, when it feels like the end of the world is coming, it might be important for us to continue to keep our gaze raised and remember the overarching narratives of history and how we play a part in that. So this week we are going to be talking about, um, uh, we're, it's basically a history lesson, Jeff. We're going to be talking about queerness and indigenous communities, and we also will be talking about a sense of purpose and community and belonging. Uh, these are all things that, for any of you who know me well, know are important to me, and um, I think they should be important to you, too. Looking forward to it. This is going to be fun. And today in our conversation, we are going to be bringing back uh, an oldie but a goodie segment, Jesus Juke. And so, uh, I always look forward to hearing uh, Jeff's, you know, interesting <laughs> sermon <laughs> illustrations. So Mostly inappropriate, but, you know. That's right. <laughs> So, Jeff, talk to me about what it was like for you as a youth pastor 
you know, I've heard you talk sort of in the past about navigating your own feelings about some of the things that you you said, or you still think about some of those queer uh, young people that you were pastor to. And what what is that like for you? That is a good question. I, I still hold a lot of guilt because I did perpetuate a lot of the systems and a lot of the purity culture things that we we talk about a lot. You know, I did all the cliche things, you know, separating the boys and the girls, doing doing all that stuff, being a part of creating, quote, accountability groups for young men in particular who were struggling with their sexuality. And and that even that term, like struggling with their sexuality. Uh, I loved accountability groups. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> I can't imagine. Like, I mean, talking talking with you and, you know, getting to know you over the past few years and then, you know, other people and just hearing what it was like internally to be in those settings, you know, amplifies that that guilt for me. And <laughs> I, I, I'm just a general guilty person, you know, self-loathing kind of person anyway. I was like, good, a recovering <laughs> evangelical would be, right? Right. So, but I, but I do. And I'm thankful that Many, I don't know all, I don't know what was going on in everyone's heart and mind and spirit during that time, but I'm thankful for the relationships I have with many of those students and, you know, leaders that were working with me. I'm thankful that I have good relationships with many of them now, and that despite all my mistakes, they still found value in the ministry that we provided and they still found at least a semblance of acceptance. But I know that that's not true for everyone. And I know that's not true for the ones that maybe have came in the door once or twice and then left. And that's their lasting impression. Again, not to make it all about me, but I think it's emblematic of all the things that we've talked about and the spaces that we've created, especially for those of us that were in ministry and evangelical settings. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard to quantify. Sure. Exactly. And I think I just got to a place where I'm like, I have to just listen to people's stories and keep it at that. And trust their stories. Trust their stories, right. And yeah. and realize in those moments, you know, it, it's easier now, but it was hard at first because you're put in a position of authority where you feel you always have something to say or some advice to give. And, you know, just as a general human being, I think it's hard to sit and hear someone's heartache and sorrow and not try to say something of comfort, but learning to just shut my mouth and, and listen and accept and also be willing to be held accountable. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I think that listening piece and noticing what's happening around you without making judgment is really important, right? Like what I think one of the most important things that this podcast has been offering over the last few months, the ability for our listeners and for ourselves to take in and absorb what is happening around us from perspectives of other people and to say, how does this impact us or not? Right. Right. But, and and despite, you know, especially like you're talking about with Encila's situation, a lot of what we do impacts her generation. And we could come from a, well, I, it was snowing both ways, you know, walking to school or whatever, that stupid 
phrases. It's early here, everyone. Uh, well, our version of it will be, you know, you had actually put a disc in a machine and right. like switch your album. So that's, that's our right. our right. generation's or, version or, of walking uh, in the snow. That's right. Or uh, do you know how long dial up took? <laughs> right. <laughs> that annoying sound. To, that's right. Yeah. Which are which is ridiculous. Um, especially when we think of where the world is and what we've left for our young people. In fact, the other day I was talking to a bunch of younger queer folks who, by the way, said, it's so nice to have a an older gay man talking to us, which was like, I could have died. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was talking to them and we were talking about... Uh, just the difference in terms of what it was like to come out and how much different their experience has been than my experience, right? I mean, gay marriage has only been around since, you know, 2013 or whatever. But there's almost 10-year-olds who've lived in a world where gay marriage is a thing. I mean, in my lifetime, being a homosexual became not illegal. That is crazy to me. Mm-hmm. And only in a few countries, not even that's right worldwide. That's right. Yeah. And so, um, listening to the experience of another, honoring, uh, yeah, and back to thinking about these young people. But you know, one of the things that I am thinking about in terms of you know some of the the streams, the threads of conversation that we've been having, has been around some queer history that I want to share with you today. Um, related to spirituality and um, sexuality, particularly in the queer community, because I think that it speaks to where Christianity has the potential to either wake up and make some big changes in terms of solidarity for with the world, or has the potential to find itself in a very dark place on the wrong side of history. So I'm um, taking this queer history class just for kicks and giggles. And the first week we were talking about um, Two-Spirit People. Two-Spirit People is a name that was created to identify queer indigenous people in the 90s. They decided that because, believe it or not, everyone, there were 15 million people on this continent before colonization. They had societies, right? I mean, indigenous people had societies. They had roles for everything, including queer people. Many of them, I knew many of them played a religious role or some sort of leadership role in in tribes, mostly because they could hold the the balance of the feminine and the masculine. They were adopted parents to orphans. Uh, some of them, you know, were sort of like responsible for the spiritual lives of people. But the story that I, the history that I had learned a few weeks ago was about indigenous two-spirited people in Southern California, closer to where you're from. They were undertakers. Their role was to tend to the end-of-life process for their tribe members because they knew a lot about fertility in the feminine and they knew a lot about death as warriors. And so they held this, this balance, this tension and would walk people to death. So a, a question, and I don't yeah. know if you have a framework for that, but so I, I guess what we're doing here is I'm in, I'm in the student role and you sure. are, you're my professor for today, today, professor Casey. Yeah. Uh, so in that, in that tension, is that a tension 
was that tension a reality for them? Or is that the only way we can describe it? Because we live in that tension of gender binaries. So uh, I think indigenous people would say that that was that that tension was um, real to them, right? That's what made them sacred is that they didn't live in the binary. That was the that was the most powerful piece. But was it? But what I'm asking, I guess, is like, was it an accepted yes place? That's right. Because when I hear tension, I feel like it's the like conflict balance. And, yeah, yeah. By balance, that, that's a good it's one. it's a better word it would be balance. That that the, these people struck the balance between the feminine and the masculine, and they were valued for that because they could see beyond the binary. And so the conquistadors show up in Southern California. And there's all this documentation of how bothered they are by seeing these two-spirited people. Obviously, that was not the word they used for them. There was another word that later in Spanish becomes like a slang for a very gay derogative word, which would be jota. But that word initially was um, used differently, and it was used by indigenous people in Southern California to claim their own identities. But there's all these writings around uh, from the Span- Spanish conquistadors and missionaries who are concerned about uh, men dressed as women, and that they are they are fulfilling uh, female roles in the tribe. Hanging, they're hanging out with women, and basically their writings are these are sheep or wolves in sheep's clothing, because obviously they're dressed this way so that they can uh, get close to the women and then rape them. It's striking to me how hundreds of years later the rhetoric and the ideas still have not changed yeah that that predator mindset from the outside existed even then and here's the trippy thing for me thinking about where does this idea of rape and pillage come from but the very people who are writing about it right i guess there's a certain amount of projection it's from their own imagination yeah what would you do if you were in a bathroom with women? It's not, you know, I mean, like that's literally right. the thing. Yeah. Um. So is it your your concern for what trans women will do, or is it the concern of what you might do left to your own devices? Like this is a concerning thread line of like where is this coming from? So I'm reading this right, and so what these conquistadors start doing is taking these uh, two spirited people, and again, it wasn't just people who maybe were. Uh, their sex at birth was male. It could have been um, that their sex at birth was female. Also, I don't want. I want to be clear that this is a role that was played by um, all sorts of uh, varieties of people. The issue then becomes that they start taking these uh, these folks and feeding them to their dogs. The conquistadors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and indigenous folks feeling anxious that these visitors are so bothered by these indigenous or these two-spirited folks that they begin to offer them to the conquistadors in hopes that they might leave. Well, if this is the only problem they have with us, then maybe we can offer them up as sacrifice, basically, and then, and then the Spaniards would leave, thinking that that was just the issue. So here's the kicker. Remember how I said their role in the community was to bury the dead? To tend to their to tend to their dying, what begins to happen is that these indigenous communities who have who who now no longer have these uh, this person in in the beloved community, 
in the tribe to tend to their dying begin to realize that they have no rituals for death anymore. But you know who does? The Catholics. And so indigenous people began to convert to Catholicism. Sure, under occupation, under uh, starvation, because they were either rounded up and brought to the missions as slaves, or out of disparity, they, they came. And one of those pieces being that there was no one to bury their dead. And so they converted to Catholicism. I am reading this, and I am weeping. Because I'm beginning to realize, like, this whole part of me growing up as an evangelical queer kid, this part of me that they told me was bad and broken. For those of you that don't know, I am Chickasaw. Obviously, my ancestors did not come from Southern California. But the Choctaw did have a, have a word for, for uh, that two-spirit person. Chickasaw, that's all missing, right? A lot of our words, a lot of our things, history is not accessible to us for, for many indigenous tribes. That's true. Um, and I'm not trying to say that I know everything, but this is just in my own research. I'm weeping because I'm thinking about, for me, like how many people in my life as a young person, youth pastors, pastors, who told me that I was bad and broken, who told me that there was something wrong. And then reading this history of queer ancestors who who played vital roles in the life of community, who were doing pastoral care to tribes and knowing that like that deep inside of me that this feeling i have always had had around call to pastor call to spirit is also in balance with this piece of me that was gay as hell and that both of those things were beautiful and essential parts of my being and that i am fulfilling the role of queer ancestors in the work that I do currently. That's amazing. I can't imagine. And I say that like in all sincerity, I can't imagine because my history as a straight white male has been validated over and over again. And the way that we talk about oppression, racism, homophobia, the way we talk about it was that's, that was just back then. That was back then. Things were different. Da, 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 da. I can't imagine how freeing and moving it was to discover that that is not the case and that there's always been a place in your lineage that you can continue. I, I'm thinking about all the queer young people that I know and how deeply spiritual they are. Like, there's so many, think of it. I mean, I know, even in my own ministry, there were so many queer kids who would come to church and they wouldn't identify necessarily as Christian. They wouldn't, but they always, there was a sense of spirit in them. Um, and I think that's true for everyone. I'm not saying everyone that queer people have the market on spirit. I'm just simply saying that. Um, but to counter that, there are many people that say that they do not have spirit. That's right. That's the point. Mm hmm. And for me, the thing that is so moving about this is that we are continuing, you know, where we live, what's happening in the world, nearby and far away around trans folks, especially. Right. Especially right now. That's right. That recent letter that came out from, what was the, the governor's office? Yeah. The, the, um, the, you know, in Florida, they're trying to pass a bill, right? That, that, mm -hmm. um, 
don't say gay or something crazy like that. And so all of these, the the hyper rhetoric, again, is bubbling up around um, anti-queerness, anti-transness. Iowa being the, almost, I think it was the first state to have gay marriage, is like the state on full assault against trans people in our country. We are always in these cycles of um, what will we do next? What is our posture and our responsibility to uh, care for the least among us, right? And so I'm reading these things and I'm thinking about our own past, but also our own present. And what will we do? And how will we respond? I mean, if you think about the Spaniards writing this down and their concerns and their projections, we, like you said, we see it. It's the same sort of people who are yelling in school board meetings about not wanting trans kids to play sports, right? Right. One of the things for me in terms of allyship is um, checking our bias and acknowledging where we've gone or where we have been and where we are going. And I think that that's the hardest part, at least in our current American culture, because our biases are fortified everywhere we turn. You know, our, our, our new currency is engagement. So if you can create outrage or division, you create money, you create power, you create wealth. Like literally that's what's happening. It's hard to put yourself outside of that bubble because it's, it's wonderful to feel validated, to feel right. And I think that, it separates us from the stories of others or it enables us to appropriate the stories of others because we can take something we like and, you know, separate it from its context, from its lived embodied experience. And we've been taught, we get our information from the ones that benefit, you know, whether it's social media or quote unquote corporate media, you know, instead of historians and lived experiences of people and all that stuff. Right. And I think, well, and I think that that's the biggest thing is that who will we allow to speak? I mean, who will we allow to speak period? The, the, the thing for me is like, can we trust one another to say like, I hear you. And that's really the only way into the future is the ability for all people to be at the table and to say, this is my lived experience and how do we fix it? How can we hear each other enough to say, I no longer want to be the one to make these assumptions about your lived experience, and I don't want to act as if I know anything. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Personal one? Yeah. So growing up in evangelical circles, there's probably few groups that were given a narrative more than LGBTQ teens about what life was going to quote be like if you continued down a certain path yeah how living in that felt especially for someone like you who was heavily and deeply involved that would be considered a, a leader and what the journey was like whether you had moments of like acceptance and genuine like trying to struggle through it like, i guess maybe the journey from who you knew you were and how you went to full acceptance of who you are and and what were some of the main, at least for you, what were some of the main um, tent poles in that? Well, I think one of the biggest things is uh, 
speaking of evangelicals, Ted Haggard was one of the big moments for me because uh, Ted Haggard was this, any of you who uh, have watched Jesus Camp, he's in fact in there. He like makes homophobic jokes in Jesus Camp. He was a mega church pastor in Colorado and he uh, was arrested for having uh, sex with a man, a prostitute in the family van. And I remember seeing that in the news and thinking, oh my God, that could be you. Because many of you have heard me say, like, all I ever wanted to be was a pastor. That was the only thing that ever really sparked my interest. It was, it was, the, it was the, that call on my life, they would say. Uh, there was one moment, uh, one evening, where I had considered it killing myself. Because it felt like, um, what was the point? If I couldn't be a pastor, if I couldn't shake this homosexuality thing, I was going to hell either way. Why waste a lifetime with the end result being the same? And so uh, that evening, there was something, whether it was God or my own sort of intuition, that just said, you need to find another way. Do not do this. Uh, I got up off the shower floor where I planned to end it. And I started reaching out to, you know, what some back then would have identified as heathen clergy because they were supportive of queer folks. And I just said, I need another way. I need, I need help. And that was the journey that sort of perpetuated me to this place of moving forward. But uh, honestly, it was only when I got to my previous call, when the church divided over my being queer half of them left and took all their money with them, that there was this deep sense of purpose. Because as they left, 30 queer kids started showing up to church, not just on Wednesdays, but every day that I was there. I was feeding queer kids and taking them to coffee because there was nowhere else for them to go. And it was like all of the struggle, all of the pain in, the, in that moment was clarified with, you now know the way. Like, you know the way to walk with them and offer, you know, offer answers or be present to their pain. And you can hold all of this intention. You know, mentioning Ted Haggard and having that, that fear of that that could be you. You know, and I often hear stories of people and how profound and important that coming out moment is. And how, when that moment is taken away from people, you know, how that can be such a profound trajectory change. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I wonder, and not to play the what if game or anything like that, but knowing yourself and, and how you respond to things, do you think you would have gotten to this place down a more difficult path had you, quote, been outed by someone else? I think in some ways, because of the the place in which I came out, I was outed left and right, right? I mm. mean, I was in a small Bible college of 150 people. <laughs> and those walls were thin, honey. They were thin. <laughs> and so you you could whisper something, and by tomorrow, people would know. And so I felt like coming into the community, I was not too often blindsided because I had expected it. 
you know, I'm an Enneagram four. I just absorb the drama. Like it's <laughs> like lotion. So I didn't, I mean, I didn't mind that. I think would have been more damaging is if they would have found. Th- so at one point they tried to get me thrown out of the college. But the thing that saved me was that there was nothing that said that I couldn't be there. You know, some of these more conservative Christian colleges got smart and started making a document that you have to sign when you come on that says, you know, I will not participate in homosexuality or whatever, some crazy stuff. Right. I think that the outing was not the thing. It would have been the complete removal that would have been the destructive piece for me. And I see that in the, the young people that I serve here in Northern California. There's a very conservative Christian college near me where they are thrown out of this institution and the tatters of their faith after, because that is a whole different experience. Is that because it's like a, a final manifestation of a, of an isolation that's already internal? Yeah. Hmm. And on the flip side of that, I would say it's more about the experience of community, because this is one of the things that I actually love about being a queer person is that we have a sense of self that is unshakable. For any young person to have the audacity to come out in a family that looks and acts different than them, in a society that mostly will tell them, well, depending upon where they are, um, that they are an abomination, that they are bad and broken, that they are not loved. Any person who, who can grow in that kind of frigidness can bloom and blossom, has to have a sense of self that is not, I do not feel far from myself. But what I do feel far from, or what I did feel far from, were the people who told me that they would love me no matter what. A community that said that God loved me, and that God had purpose and plan for my life. And that when that piece is removed, then it's, who am I? Outside of radically queer and beautiful, how then do I connect to spirit? Who then do I find to be in beloved community with? Because that is something that we are all prone to. We long to be in relationship. That's just the mammal in us, I guess, or whatever. We want to be in relationship. Wow. Casey, that's... uh quite the journey over the past few weeks to kind of have that discovery of your place in history, so to speak, connected to, to your ancestry. And it, it, I imagine it feels like a boost because obviously calling is very important to you. And, you know, all the common thread through everything we've been talking about right now is the sense of, of calling and how it goes from feeling so elusive to being so permanent, I don't know if that's the right word, but just just having that sense of like this is this is what I am and who I'm supposed to be. Yeah, and I think that that's the thing is that you know it's an invitation for anyone who's listening. I think that uh, probably for many of our listeners who now live at the periphery of communities that they loved, right? Or um, who have, who feel like they have lost their way. The invitation is to remind them that they too are deeply spiritual and to trust themselves. Trust yourself, friends. That's the thing that I'm walking away from is that for so many of us at some point in our life, that trusting ourselves 
is ripped away from us. Whether that be, you know, in adolescence or whether that be in the trauma of being in toxic religious communities, there is a moment where we lose touch with that inner voice. And that is sort of the thing, is that nobody outside of you gets to speak for who you are. Nobody outside of you gets to classify you and clarify you. (laughs) You alone get to do that. And that we all play a part. Like, we all play a part. And so when we hear about Christofascism and we talk about the, uh, the end times and the invitation that times are just always ending, and how do we ride that wave with a little less anxiety? By just trusting our own tu- intuition and tending to the things we need to. Yeah. You know, the way that you, you say that, kind of not to, to wrap everything up in a pretty little bow or anything, but we've been affected at least those of us that come from evangelical backgrounds, I think we've been not affected, but infected with evangelical interpretation of calling, that it's something that happens to us. It's something that makes us set apart and special as opposed to it's something that we live into. Mm. It's something that, that, that didn't happen in a moment, you know, at a burning bush or at a river or anything like that. All that is, is a reminder of something that was there from the beginning. Cause I've, I've tried to, in my own life, demystify this idea of calling because I've seen that the damage that it done in terms of holding on to that interpretation of it being something that, that happens to you, that sets you apart, that makes you more special than someone else. It's called holy narcissism. There you go. That's a good way to put it. It's exactly it. And, coming from a a Pentecostal background where everything was spiritualized and it was, you know, almost akin to a fantasy novel, the way that you interpret your life and, you know, that everyone has to be the Frodo, the yeah. hero of the story or whatever. But demystifying it a little bit and, and just maybe listening to you, now I have this like working definition that I want to sit with of calling of just a full acceptance of self. If we believe that we have been created as whole good beings and the things that pull us away from that wholeness are oppression and injustice and all the things that, that we as progressive Christians are trying to be a part of making better, you know, Casey, like you like to say, you know, living your authentic self and finding your authentic self. And maybe that's, Maybe that's just a simple definition of calling is that it's not this divine setting apart, but it's this divine recognition that everyone is special. Everyone is valuable. Amen. <laughs> well, I think it'll that'll do it for this week. <laughs> I think so. It's a good conversation, Casey. Thank you for bringing this. I was a little worried how this was going to go because I know we talked a little bit about what the conversation was going to be like. And I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I have much to say, but I I really appreciate, you know, obviously we we have good talks all the time, but now we can record one and and let everyone else know, you know, why why the relationships that we have with one another exist on the show and, uh, you know, how special and meaningful they are. Yeah, I agree with that. 
And for those of you that are listening that wish Bonnie was here, I feel you. I'm sure this would have been a way more interesting conversation if she was here. But uh, that'll do it for us this week. To add your voice to this particular conversation, comment on the show notes at irenacast.com slash 197. In the show notes, you'll find relevant links and a complete list of all the ways to add your voice to this conversation. We also will add the article that I read around indigenous people in Southern California. Right. Yeah. And we mentioned a lot of stuff in the conversation, like the missions. I mean, here in California, we have a very extensive history on on how the, the missions were planted and all that kind of stuff. So we'll put some articles in the show notes for those as well at irenacast.com slash 197. So, and if you haven't already, please consider joining our email list. Joining our email list is the best way to keep updated on all things Irenacast. You can find the link to subscribe to the in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 197. And on the other side of the music, we will be playing Jesus Juke. Here we go. Should be fun. And we're back on the other side of the music here. And so today we're going to be playing Jesus Juke. And for those of you that don't know how this goes, uh, Jeff and I are going to both come up with two different items. And we're going to use them as sermon illustrations. And so, uh, Jeff, why don't you... uh, All right. So you want me to give you the item and you're going to go for it, right? Uh, Yes. Okay. And just clarify for those of you that may this is a segment that has been since the the infancy of this uh, podcast and it is we're not doing serious sermon illustrations a lot of these will delve into the cringiest parts of evangelicalism and uh all in good fun of course and uh maybe more of a cathartic psychological exercise for your hosts (laughs) all right so we are we're recording right now in casey's wonderful home in his dining room it's been the nice thing is to be able to record together and not have to look at each other over a Zoom. Right. So, uh, not to expose too much about your your home, Casey, but you, you walk in here, you can get a good glimpse of the things that Casey loves and holds dear in his life. One of them being, a, I think, a recent discovery, right? I'm looking at these vinyl records. Yes. So, so that's that's the thing, Casey. Use the, the idea of a vinyl record to spin your poetic interpretation of God's will in your life. Yes. So, your soul is like a vinyl record. And the Lord has written things on your heart. But the thing about the vinyl record is, is that you you need a place to play it. You cannot do it in isolation. Why do I have a Baptist voice today? I don't know. You cannot do it in isolation, Jeff. And so, it is in community when the needle hits the thread and all of what God has promised to you and has brought forth in your spirit is played out. like it. Okay. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to put that in my uh, sermon notebook. And- <laughs> there you go. Okay, Jeff, tell me about uh, a hot tub. Hot tub. Okay. Many times in scripture, (laughs) we are confronted with the reality of our sin. And one of the ways that we 
show the world that we are on a new path, that sin no longer controls us, is a beautiful, wonderful sacrament of baptism. Oh, he went there. We baptize one another in the baptismal at church, in the lake down the road, even in the, the raging waters of the ocean. But we also know that in contrast to that, that the fires of hell are waiting for us oh, if we God. do not follow. Here we go. And many times we in life try to walk the line between heaven and hell. Ooh. Many of us want the comfort of water. Yes. And the warmth of fire. <laughs> and in that attempt to have quote unquote the best of both worlds we are lukewarm oh. in the mouth of god many of us are living a hot tub christianity oh my <laughs> god where we want the soothing waters of god but have not yet let go of the fiery burning <laughs> flames of hell oh my and my god. challenge to you this oh, morning no you did not is to be a Christian, a river Christian. A river Christian. <laughs> an ocean Christian. But never. <laughs> a baptismal Christian, but never a, a hot, hot tub, tub Christian. Christian. For around the corner is the fiery <laughs> coals of hell waiting for you. Oh, my God. I think that would have gone over well back in my evangelical I can just days. Hear them. I can hear people standing to their feet. Yes. We can have a hot tub burning yeah. <laughs> ceremony. <laughs> uh, All right. Let's see. Oh, uh, sprinklers. Continue with the water theme. Sprinklers. Sprinklers. <sighs> okay. <laughs> All right. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> We hear from the Apostle Paul that, that it is our role to be the body of Christ. Some of us are the hands, some of us are the feet. <laughs> <laughs> and so there are some who are called to plant the seeds, and there are others who are called to water the seeds. And I tell you this morning, siblings in Christ, Sometimes you just need to spray people. <laughs> you need to just give them a good wetting <laughs> so that they might flourish in Christianity. That's very on brand. Yeah. I like it because, you know, a lot of uh, in youth groups snickering at some of the worship songs because they're very. Uh, <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> innuendo. Be a squirt or not a pastor. <laughs> oh man, that, that's your sermon title right there. Yeah, that's right. Oh goodness. Okay, Jeff. Air fryer. Air fryer. Okay, that's a good one. We live in a world of convenience. Anything you want, you can have. Anything you want, you should have. That's what the world tells us. 
And a lot of the times we've taken that philosophy into our faith, into our heart, into our spirit, and believe that God should answer our prayers immediately, right when we say it, instead of putting the work in. Now, of course, I'm not saying that our faith is based on works, <laughs> but our works maintain our faith. <laughs> they keep us moving forward. <sighs> and we just want it instantly. We yes. don't want the hard work. We don't want the messiness of living in real life. You know, for many of us, we love fried food. I love fried food. It is some of the greatest, most tastiest food in the world, but it takes work if you want to have fried food at home. You've got to get out the oil. You've got to get out the Dutch oven or whatever mechanism that you have. You've got to make sure that the temperature is just right. But now there's these devices. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going into a weird accent either. <laughs> but now there's these, these fangled air fryers that promise you the convenience without the mess. And I got to tell you, that's not what God calls us to. <laughs> God calls us to get lubed up in the oil <laughs> and get messy and do the work that we need to do so that we can enjoy the fruits of our labor. <laughs> because air fried chicken tenders are from the devil. <laughs> but deep fried, <laughs> that comes from the Lord. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Not my finest, but I have thoughts on deep fryers anyway. Well, that's another segment. Yeah, I, guess. I was. I'm. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking about Jeff. Like all of Jeff's stuff is about burning, right? Uh, yeah, you must have been. You must have been a Pentecostal. Oh yeah, a fire and water are yeah. like the Pentecostal emblems, right? Yeah. Well. Um, I guess that does it for us this week, Jeff. I guess so. Yeah, they, we may not have any listeners after this week, but <laughs> I know sometimes we 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 uh, feed into our worst tendencies when we get together, Casey. <laughs> I know. If you enjoy Irenicast and would like to join the work we are doing, please consider donating to our PayPal link at irenicast.com/slash PayPal. We are committed to keeping the show free for listeners, but there are costs involved, and your financial support helps. That's irenicast.com slash PayPal. Irenicast is also a nonprofit organization, so your donations are tax deductible. You can also support the show by simply making sure you follow the show wherever uh, you listen to your podcasts. And if the platform allows it, please leave a rating and or review. So for this week, I'm Casey. And I'm Jeff. Thanks for joining the conversation. Mm-hmm.